0: Alright, good afternoon everyone. Let's learn Parshas Chayas Sora. Okay, so I want to do, as we've done the past couple weeks, is sharing some of the teachings from Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, the great leader of the Jewish-German community, passed away in the late 1800s, and uh, his brilliant commentary on Chumash. So we're going to read through the beginning of the parsha, which is familiar to us, the story of the death of Sarah. Uh, maybe if we have time, we'll get to the beginning of Avraham sending out his evid Eliezer to find a wife for his son Yitzchak. We'll see if we get to that. But let's talk a little bit about this per- this purchase of the land, the burial plot, the in which Sarah is going to be buried. Eventually, of course, Avram will be buried with her, together with Yitzhak and Rivka and Yaakov and Leah are all buried there. And the opening story that we have, based on the comments of... Uh, based on the comments of Rav Let's just set the context, once again, of where we are. The end of last week's parsha was the famous story of the Akedah, in which Avram was commanded to take his son Yitzchak to bring him as an offering on top of Har HaMoriah, the Mount Moriah, uh, which he does. And, of course, before he's able to do so, the malach calls out and stops Avram. And... Um, and as that story continues, they, he, he descends, so to speak, down from the altar. What's relevant to us as we begin this week's Parsha is that at the end of last week's Parsha, after uh, the Malach uh, praises Avram for that which he did and blesses Avraham for what he did, the Torah says, Vayoshev Avram, Avram returned to the two lads that he had left behind before he ascended the mountain. And they went to Beersheva. They went to live in Beersheva, Vayeshev Avram Be'er Sheva, and that's in Indeed, where Avraham went to live in Beersheva. Those of you familiar with the terrain of uh, Eretz Yisrael, that is south of Jerusalem, into the desert already, the Judean uh, desert. They lived in Beersheva. Now, that's also the place right before, in last week's parsha, this command of Avraham to take his son and bring him as an offering. Literally, the verse before that pasach, that beginning of this tremendous test, also described that Avraham lived in Beersheva. So we have the beginning and the end of last week's Parsha story of the Akedah. Avraham is in Beersheva at the beginning. He's in Beersheva at the end. And now we begin um, our Parsha. Let's learn together. Let me give you actually, let's do uh, both here. Uh, okay. So the Torah says, opens up this week's Parsha as follows. And it was... The Sara the lifetime of Sara was Mea a hundred years, the Esrim Shana and twenty years ve shav Shanim and seven years Schne Chaye Sara. These were the years of Sarah. and right away this puzzle jumps out at us. It's a odd way to describe someone's life. If you were to describe the life, the, the years, just simply how old a person was, this is like uh, I was doing a sixth grade math with one of my kids last night, and I figured all oh, the different hundred years and twenty years and seven years, and tell it to me straight. She was one hundred and twenty seven, but the Torah here spreads it out in that way. Refresh points out two interesting things. Number one, a little trivia, trivia point of reference. This is the only instance in all of Tanakh in which a woman's age is given. We have many, many women in Tanakh. We are told of their births. We are told of their deaths. There is not another instance in all of Tanakh in which the age of a woman is actually listed other than this. The significance of that... Um, he, he doesn't necessarily say, um, but uh, the, the, if you want to, I, I'm not even going to say. Never mind. I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> I've learned a few things in my years. I've learned a few things. I'm not even going to make the joke. I'm not even going to make the joke. We're just going to leave it at that. As a point of trivia, if you want to know who's the only woman in all of Tanakh that gets an age, it is Sarah. What Rav Hirsch does note what Rav Hirsch does note is what Rashi quotes from Chazal, based on the fact that the Torah said it as she was 100 and she was 20 and she was 7. So Rashi comments, it's to tell us that when she was, it's that, that each one should be expounded upon on its own, that she was at 100, she was like 20, when she was 20, she was like when she was 7. And Rashi explains, what does that mean? What do the sages mean to say? That when she was 100, she was still as free of sin as she was when she was 20. Sages have a tradition that until a person is 20 years old, they are, they are absolved in the heavenly court of any prohibitions that a person might have violated. They're pure from sin until the age of 20. Now, if, if we, in the time where there was a court that existed in this world, if a person did something from the time they're over bar mitzvah, any person could be punished for anything. But in the heavenly courts, a person is absolved until they're 20. And so the sages expounded that the fact she was 100 and she was 20 and she was 7, when she was a hundred, she was as pure of sin as when she was twenty. And when she was twenty, she was still as beautiful as when she was seven—the pure, beautiful innocence of a seven-year-old she carried with her uh, into her uh, adult years as well, as we first points out. As first points out, that these actually represent the three different stages in the the human life. We have the development of childhood, where we're youngsters, where we're in our youth. We have the stage of life of young adulthood, mature youth, and we have the stage of life of our completed old age. We could break it down, of course, a little into a bit more. But those are the three basic stages that a person goes through as we uh, journey through life. We have our youth. Um, and then we have our, our young adulthood as we begin to uh, raise families and, and begin our careers. And then uh, as we settle in, as the children leave the homes, as we finish up with our jobs, then we have our, uh, our golden years. And the sages are expressing that Sarah's completion of her life encompassed all three of those stages. As, as in the seven was like its own stage. As a seven-year-old, as a 20 was her stage representing her young adulthood. And at, uh, at 100... As Refersh points out, the real goal of what the sages are pointing out over here is the idea that a person, I wanna read you his language, uh, takes with them, takes with them at each stage everything that they had accomplished from the previous one into the next stages of that which they're doing. One who truly lives or truly takes the crowning specialty of each age, the whatever it is the youth, the exuberance of young of being of youthful, we take it we take that with us into our next stage. And the days are not spent and done with. It's not like, okay, I finished that stage and now I move on to the next, but I take all the spiritual and moral acquisitions of the past days into the coming days of what it is that we accomplish. And that, therefore, the Golden Ages are a, an in, embodiment of everything that was garnered and gathered and learned from the previous years. The end of the Pasuk, which describes that this life, the, the lifetime of Sarah, this 127 years, are the years that she lived, which is always, again, we're describing her death is the next Pasuk is going to say. And we, dis- we say these are the years that she lived, as we're describing someone's passing. And Refersh picks up on that as well. All of these years are called Chaye Sarah, the lifetime of Sarah. She lived, um, emphasis on the word lived in all of them. This is, again, his language. The whole of her 127 years' existence was a life, a lively, cheerful, important, good life. No moment of it, that she would have had wished not to have been there, living in the moment of every single one of those hundred and twenty-seven years. Of moment was chaye sarah. they were the life that she lived. And then he writes refersh, and all of this was only shnei chaye. These were a part of the life of her existence a part of the life of her existence because, he writes, it's a very important concept that he brings in here. He almost says it in passing. For life is not measured by the span of time which is given to us to live here. Very important line that he, he doesn't spend a lot of time on, but I want to just stop for a moment. I want to read that again. Life is not measured by the span of time that was given to us to live here. It's a very beautiful idea. Every one of us will be given, as everyone who's lived before us and everyone who lived after us, has a certain amount of time in this world. And we use the word, that's the lifetime. That's the amount of time that a person had to exist in this world. And that's true. That's the amount of time that we have to, to live, to accomplish, to grow, to do, to, to develop relationships, all the things that we do. But when we talk about life, The life is not only measured by that amount of time which we actually physically had in this life. As he quotes in the words of the sages, Chazal described, Tzadikim bin Misasan, the righteous, even in their death, Kruyim Chaim, are still called alive. Why are they still called alive even after a person passes on to the next world? Because the righteous ones live on down here even after their death because their teachings continue, their legacy continues, their memory continues. A person in this lifetime leaves something and then whatever they left in this world, they're still here through that. That might be an idea, it might be a book, it might be our own children, which then continue the legacy after. I mentioned this idea many times. Why is it when a person has a yard site, so we use that opportunity to give stucco? Why is that such an important thing? Or they learn something, they have a sheer in the memory of a person. It's simply because a person, the person who's passed away, a loved one, a parent, so their time in this world has completed. Now they're in the world of truth. But the impact that they had in this world is not done. Look, tzedakah was given in the merit of such a person. So when tzedakah is given in the merit of such a person, that person who's passed away is still having an impact in this world because it's because of them that their friends, family, descendants, children are still doing things. Look at the impact that tzedakah has to whatever organization it goes. It's still impacting things that they they learned, books that they wrote, teachings that they have are commemorated, are relived, and therefore, as the, it's still that's why the Gemara again says bin Misas, and even in their death, that tzaddikim are still called, uh, still called alive, and therefore sar imenu continues to have an impact, the lifetime that she had in this world of life, in this world was 127 years. When we measure the impact of the life that she had in this life, in this world, that is far more than just 127. That continues on as we continue learning um, about her. One last comment, Ezra first writes about this idea, that there is no day, there is no moment, he says, that is not recorded in God's book. Again, basing himself on teachings from Chazal, that there's a book uh, that one of the, 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 the mission in Perk Yavu says, if you want to always keep yourself on the straight and narrow, so you should always remember three things. There's an eye that sees everything. There's an ear that hears everything. Eye in roa, ozen shomas vechol ma'asecha b'sefer And everything that happens is written into a book. So the Mishra says, if you keep that in mind, you'll, you'll keep yourself on a good path. So her first picks up on that idea. There's nothing, no day, no moment that's not recorded. Such 127 years of life down here contains no day that is unimportant. There, there is nothing that happened. To everything, every day, every moment is important. It's recorded. We only record things that matter. Yes, every moment that we have. Every day that we have is important to make the most of it, to utilize it, to, to accomplish that which we can. And therefore, we start with the life of Sarah was 127 full years. They're just the years that she had in this earth. It continues even after. And that's how we begin this, uh, this parasha. Moving on, Pasuk Beis. And Sarah died. Where did she die? In Kiryat Arba, hi Chavron. Be'eretz Kinaana. And Avraham came to mourn for Sarah and to cry uh, over her. And as the commentators uh, address this passage, so where, did, where is Sarah when she dies? So we're told that she's in a place called Kiryat Arba, which is also known as Chevron, which I'm sure many of you have been to. That's, of course, where Ma'arat is. That's where today, if you want to go to the cave to visit our uh, mamas and, our, and uh, the, uh, the, the babas and the zedas are buried there. So you have to go to Chevron. That's, uh, that's where, that's where she died. Kiryat Arba Hechavron. Well, where did, uh, Avraham live? Where, where was he both before the Akedah and after the Akedah? We know that he was in Beersheba, which is a, uh, a different city. So many say, Vayavo Avraham. So when the Possum says that Avraham had to come, where was he coming from? So he had to come from where he lived, from Beersheba. In order to come to Sarah and to cry over her where she was in Hebron. Reverse writes, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like that interpretation, which would then require us to say that Avraham was not with his wife Sarah when she died, that he was in Beersheba, living separated from her in Hebron, that he must have sent her from Beersheba to Hebron. And there are those who do say, indeed, who connect. That the reason why Sarah's death is right here is because when she had, Rashi quotes is that when she had heard about the Akedah, that her son, her beloved son, who she had given birth to at ninety years of old, has been taken as offering to be brought as an offering. Pirchan Nishmasa, her soul left her and she died, and that's why Avram had to come. He was coming back from Beershev, where he was, to Chevron, where he had sent her, that she shouldn't find out about anything, and then she dies alone there. Refersh says, that's, that's certainly the approach, the, the common approach as to how to understand what's taking place. He has a very novel interpretation of the word vayavo. Vayavo, which means, and he came, which again simply means that he came from point A and he went to. Point B. But as we've seen in our studies over first, he's very much into language. And he explains that the real original meaning of the word bow is to take oneself out of the open and go into a house. He came into something. He was out in a public area, voyavo. And he came into a house, out of a public place, into a Private place, and he brings a number of examples in Tanakh where you see that language of vayavo is specifically to go from outside, inside. Bo hashemesh that the sun is setting, going out from where you could see it to know to now where it is no longer uh, able to be seen. On that, he says maybe the simple meaning of the pasuk would be vayavo Avraham. Avraham came from public to private. He withdrew. He shut himself in to mourn for his sorrow and to weep for her. He does not wear his heart upon his sleeve, makes no parade of his grief, but simply mourns within his own home in the pain of his heart, in the privacy of his home. Um, And that might be, he says also, why you might notice it's, Hard to pick up on this particular printing that you see in front of you. The word, the letter Chaf, the Liv Kota, that he cried for her, is a small letter Chaf, that it was in his own private way. But now that he's come, he's come to mourn her, to eulogize her, to cry for her. Avram arose from the presence of his dead. And he speaks to the sons of Ches. Rav again points out that he, he leaves, he needs to make arrangements. This is where we learn our source, that in halacha, there's a concept called an onain, that as soon as a person passes, the family members are absolved from everything else other than making arrangements for the funeral. They don't make brachos, they don't daven, no fill, nothing. The only job of a person from the time of passing is to make arrangements and that is learned here from Avram. This is what he engages in and is invested in as far as taking care of his wife, Sarah. And he says to them, I am a ger, I am a resident, I am a stranger, I've been with you for a long time but this is not my place, I don't belong here yet. I give me an achuzas kever, a burying place, a possession, that I should possess it. And he refers, picks up on the language of an achuza. An achuza means literally to hold on to something. That here, what Avram wanted was not just a place that I could bury my wife, Sarah, but I need a permanent, everlasting possession, the place where everyone will come uh, for, for all of Jewish history, that they will, we, this is the place where we'll be able to mourn and to grieve. And this is, this is, he says, as Avram says, I have not acquired any land until this point. This is the land that Hashem has promised me. I'm in what's going to be my home for myself and my children and my children's children, but I've as of yet... To actually purchase a piece of land, and now is the time. Now, as I need a place to put my beloved wife Sarah, this will be the first bond that attaches Avram to the land and the place that will draw him into it as an achuzah, as a place to hold on to. I need a place, a permanent place, and this is Avram's first purchase, certainly that we are told about the first purchase in which he becomes a permanent landowner in Eretz Yisrael, and that is for burial. We'll get back to this in a moment. That idea that of all things, you know, we are an interesting people, that of all things you'd say, that, what's the first plot of land that should be purchased by the first Jew in the land of Israel? And it's, it's a burial place. That, that's just what it is. I don't think many of us would have guessed that, that would be the first purchase that Avram makes in the land of, of, of Israel, but it is, and Refresh is going to get back to this, and we'll talk about this in, um, in another moment. I want to get through a couple of psukim quickly because there's another important idea, but it's a little bit deeper on, I want to just skip. So let's go through this conversation. Now, this conversation, there's much to talk about as Avram engages in the children of Chet, and then specifically with Ephron. To buy this particular plot of land, let's go through some of these uh, psukim quickly. So he says, "Shma'inu aduni." He says, "They answered him. Uh, Avram asks for his very place. So they answer him, and they say, as follows in pasuk vav, 'Shma'inu aduni, my master, listen. Nesi Elokim You are a nesi Elokim. You are like a prince of a god living amongst us. Please.'" The land is yours. Whatever you need, go ahead. No one will hold back. Whatever you'd like is absolutely okay with us, and you can um, bury your dead wherever you would uh, prefer to do so. Avram says, uh, no thanks. He is not interested in uh, in, in being given this uh, for free. First of all, he bows down to them. And he says... Please let me speak to Ephron ben Socher. I actually want to purchase this land, the Teilias and he'll give to me the Ma'aratamach Pela, which is his on the edge of the field. Full price. I'm not interested in a deal. I'm not interested in a bargain. I want to pay for it. I want it to be mine. I want to own this and bury my wife in this particular plot of land. The Torah then describes Ephron Yoshev Betuch Ephron was amongst all the people. He's the one who had this particular cave that Avram had his eyes on. And Ephron answers, b'nei ches. he answers in front of everybody where everybody can hear him. And this is what the Mafarshan pick up on how Ephron does his business. When everyone can hear him, he says, Lo No, he says, Hasada nasatilah, it's yours. Go ahead. Take it. That's what he says in front of everybody where everybody can hear. Avraham bows down again and he speaks to Ephron and he says, if you'll only listen to me, listen, please, Nasati Kesef Asode I'd like to give you the price of the field. I want to buy it. I don't want any uh, I don't want any gifts. I don't want any freebies. Let me please purchase this land. Ephron Le Ephra, Ephron replies. 400 shekels of silver. Ah, what's that between me and between you? Go ahead. So he names his price. Um, and Avram listens. He gives him the money. Shekel Kesef Over La Socher, which was by all accounts an exorbitant piece of a price for this particular field. And lastly, uh, everything went to um, Avram. So the Torah records the purchase, he gave him the land, the money, and the land uh, became his. And then Avraham buries his wife Sarah in that particular land. Okay. That is the quick run-through of the particular story. Two more very important points from Refresh on this uh, particular uh, episode. This cave, Ma'arat HaMachpilo, the cave this double cave as it's literally referred to. We already had a tradition, Avram had this tradition that not only was he and Sarah to be buried there, but Odom and Chava already had been buried there. We actually have a tradition that there are four pairs buried in Marasa Machpelah, Odom and Chava and then Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka and then Yaakov and Leah. Rachel, of course, is not buried in Marasa Machpelah. She is going to be buried alongside the road and that's what we have today, Kever Rachel. But those four pairs, the four couples are all buried there, and uh, as Rav Hirsch points out, as he already had the tradition that Adam and Chava were already there, so there was like the parents of mankind uh, were already the first to be joined in this cave, and now they were going to be joined by the parents of the Jewish people. So first Adam and Chava, mother and father of all of human life, and then Avram and Sarah uh, to be followed afterwards. As Rav points out, the name of the cave, Ma'arata payla implies that it was double, that it was formed in pairs, that it consisted of rows, and that by its natural formation it made sense that you would bury couples there. It was the simple layout of the cave was set up for such a, a scenario, which is what happens, as I've mentioned. Adam and Chava, Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivko, Yaakov and Leah are all there. And this first possession, which the Jewish people receive of their land, this first possession should not only be a burial place, Stama burial place, but one that's going to be a pair of burial places for couples and their children. And their grandchildren, that it should be a whole, the Avos, the Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and their respective wives are all there. This idea, says the first, should not be lost on us that that's the first piece of land that we have, that the value of the family, the value of having the Baba and the Zaide, and then the mother and the father, and then the son and the daughter-in-law, that they're all there together in our first piece of land that we have, that we tie the heart of the husband and his wife, the children and their wives, to parents is an inseparable connection with the Jewish land and is the fundamental trait of the character of the Jews. A, that we care for those who've passed on, that a burial place should be the first piece of land that we have, and that it should be one for a whole family, that we're connected as a family, that we never lose sight. Of. At the end of the day, we are a family. We've become a large family, but we're still just one family. What makes a Jew a Jew? Are you descended from Avram, Yitzchak and Yaakov? Then you're a Jew. Uh, to be part of the family is to be part of our nation, to be part of our religion, and therefore the first burial place that Avram, the first land that Avram buys is Burial land for an entire family, that this is the fundamental trait that will enable us to become that which we become the value of family. And family sticking together for eternity. Refers we'll suggests. The name, what's the name of the city where this cave is buried? The name is Chevron, which comes from the word Chaver, Chibor. A friend, Chibor means to be connected. Chevron is the place, as the sages remarked, that we're connected to Hashem, and we as a family are connected to each other. It's the most appropriate name for the close intimacy which makes Jewish men and women grow together in unison as husband and as wife. They should be buried together as a couple as father and mother. I'm just pointing out, you're all thinking like, of course, we take this for granted that that's one of the most important traits that couples should be buried together, their children should be buried near them. It's a value, it all stems from this, the very first purchase that we have. And he points out, Rav Hirsch points out, that when the Mishnah discusses a practice that's going to exist centuries later, when the times of the Beis HaMikdash, when the Temple stood, and the Mishnah discusses the first offering that would be brought in the morning was brought during the day. You couldn't bring it at night, so you had to wait for the sun to rise. So the Mishnah asks, well, when is it early enough in the day to bring it? And the Mishnah uses the language when the lookout, Kohen, on the top of the Beis Hamikdash could see the rays of sun over the hills in Hebron. And he would call out, in Hebron I see the light. Then they would bring the first offering in Yerushalayim. Why is it relevant to describe when you see the first rays of light in Chevron that in Yerushalayim they should bring the first? Tell me when it's sunrise in Yerushalayim. We bring the first korban. The sage is always connected. Everything that a Jew does, we connect it back to the Babas and to the zedas. We connect it back to Avram, Yisro, Yaakov, and their wives. It, it's a chibur. It's a connection. It's keyboard of the aim. Our morning starts. By remembering and recalling Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov and their wives. And so, even whatever we're doing in our day today, in Hebron, I see the light. Hebron! Oh, that's where Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah are buried. Now we can begin our day. It just describes that particular connection. Now, last point from our first beautiful point on this Uh, whole episode that we have so much time in the Torah dedicated to Avraham purchasing this land. And we've mentioned this many times before that Rav is writing a very uh, contemporary commentary. Now again, for us it's already 150 years later, so it's not as contemporary as it was in 1860 when, when he wrote it. But he was writing it to his contemporaries in Germany. And you see all of the Claims that were made against the Jews in the way that he writes to combat many of those claims. One of them, which he addresses right here, you see it's always interesting where, you know, it's not a new claim that we deal with, it's an old, old claim. Says reverse Jews are reproached with nothing more than their propensity to, he writes, quote-unquote, do business. That's all the Jew cares about. All he wants is to do business, to buy, to sell, to bargain. It's a claim that we have to do. And again, it's the 1860s he's writing this, so none of this stuff is new. It's all old stuff. See, he writes, isn't it fascinating that the Jew, who's so busy with his business and his deals and his making money, the sages looked for two places... To prove, in Halacha, how do we know that a money transaction is considered a transaction? Meaning, like everything in Halacha, what's the source that I could do business like this? So the, How do I know that if I give you money that that works to transfer possession? I gave you money, now the field became what What's our source? So the sages found in all of Tanakh, in all the 24 books, two instances in which we can prove that there's the language of kinyin and acquisition and it's affiliated with a transfer of money. So we can show that that's a valid halachic mechanism to transfer property or transfer goods through the money. There are two instances. This is one of them. Avraham buying a burial plot for his wife, Sarah, is one of the two instances in which the Pasuk says, we read a few moments ago, Avraham gave the 400 shekel, kesef, the 400 talents of silver, the most accessible manner, he gave them to Ephron, and the field became his. There's a second example that the sages point to, and that is in Sefer Yermio, the book of Jeremiah. In the 32nd chapter of the book of Yirmiyot, the Navi describes that Yirmiyot was already in jail. He was thrown into jail by King Tzidkiyahu because he was prophesizing that the end is near. He was already prophesizing that the of English is going to be destroyed. And nobody wanted to hear that prophecy. Prophets always had that problem. Whatever the prophets were talking about, nobody wanted to hear. Because whatever the prophets were saying was, you're doing this wrong, you need to do this better. Nobody likes to hear that. So they ignored the prophets. They, they caused the prophets all sorts. They so probably threw him into jail. And the Navi tells us this prophecy happened... In, uh, in the 10th year of the reign of Melech Tzidkiyahu, and the king Nebuchadnezzar of Bavel already had surrounded the city and was on his way in to destroy the city. So we're uh, literally, the Navi's describing the very end of Yerushalayim and the first base HaMikdash, and then the prophecy comes to a Navi that his nephew, page had flipped, excuse me, that um, his Hanamel, who is the uh, son of your uncle Sholom, is going to come to you and say, buy a specific field in Anatot, and you're the one who needs to redeem this field, I want you to go buy it. And indeed, his nephew comes to him, and Yermio says... I bought the field, and I brought, I gave him money. We wrote it up in a book, we signed it, we had witnesses, we weighed out the money, it was put into the book, and everything was done in front of everybody how I had purchased this particular field. And why was it necessary? As the nation, the, the Babylonian army, is surrounding already the city. The city is going to be destroyed within, within weeks and months. It's, a, it's about to be destroyed. And Yermio is going to purchase a piece of land. <speaking in Hebrew> because Hashem said to Yermio, I need you to buy this land. Because <speaking in Hebrew> there will yet be the purchase of houses and fields and vineyards in this land, this land which is about to be destroyed, this land which is about to be overrun, the people who are about to be exiled, one of the last things you need to do is purchase land and document it. And you're going to take that to your first rights as a sign. This land is ours. And no matter what happens throughout history, no matter where you go, no matter what, hap- wh- what terrible tragedies befall us, the message that the people will take as they're being exiled is that they have a document that says, My Zaidi purchased a piece of land and I'm coming back at some point to take hold of it. Says reverse. How remarkable that the only two pieces of land that we find, that the sages, in the, in the beginning of Masechus Kedushim, the Gemara wants to know, and how do we know that you could use money to make such a purchase? The Gemara says, well, we have Avraham Avinu, and we have this story that we just read from Yirmiyo Navi. At a time when the Babylonian armies that already overrun the country, they were at the gates of Yerushalayim. The downfall of the state was imminent, but all in order to fortify confidence in the future. You want to know what type of business the sages pointed to that a Jew does? The two types of business that a Jew does is before our national beginning, Avram purchasing a plot of land to bury his beloved Sarah that we will have for all of eternity to go and to pray. Family becomes most important. Avram and Sarah, Yitzhak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah, that piece of land is our first purchase. And at the very end of our national existence, the first destruction of the temple, which sent us into exile, those are the two places the sages say, That's, that, we buy land in the land of Eretz Yisrael. These are the, these are the types of purchases that we do. And uh, the Gumari uses that the Gemara uses that. I'll, I'll conclude with one last uh, quick thought. The Gemara, in, in, when it looks for these two concepts, of how do we know that the purchase of land works? The Gemara says, and so how, And from that we derive that under a chuppah, when a groom, a chassan, gives to his kala, to his bride, something of money, which we use the form of a ring, but it's really just something of monetary value. How do we know that that works to affect marriage? So the Gemara connects it in the same way that we see money works to affect marriage a transaction in these two plots of land. So we learned that you could use money to effect a marriage as well. So Rav Hirsch points out as well, and I, I've heard it in a, in a little different way than Rav Hirsch says it as, like, that's the best place we can go. That's the best place we can go to find that in a marriage, that, the, that when you give a ring, when you give a monetary value, that the, the effect of marriage takes place. The, the purchase of Avram, buying a field from Ephron, so the idea, I heard this years ago, is when you go back to that transaction with Avram and Ephron, both of them, both of them walked away from the deal and said to themselves, ha, what a steal. I got away with the best deal ever. Ephron got a cave. He's got a cave in the middle of his field. What's he going to do with this cave? And some guy, Avram shows up and all of a sudden wants to pay an exorbitant price, 400 talents of, of, of silver, over way overpriced for this cave in the middle of the, at the edge of my field. What can I do with a cave at the edge of my field? And he wants to pay that. Ephron said, gladly, he takes his money and says, what a steal I got. Avram walks away from the deal, and he just paid an exorbitant piece of a uh, price for uh, for this cave. And he walks away, and he says, "What a steal! I just got Maros Machpelah, Adam and Avram and uh, we, my myself and my wife Sarah, Yitzchok and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah. This is going to be the place of tefila for the Jews are going to come to pray for thousands of years. The connection, the chibur we're going to have with Hashem this way for four hundred talents of silver. What a steal!" When the Gemara looks as to where is the source that by giving a ring you can affect marriage, the Gemara found no better place than the purchase that Avra made of this field that Chassan and Kala standing under the Khopa should both enter and exit that khopa and say to themselves, What a steal I got. What a spouse. I walked away. What a deal. I can't believe that this is what I have and should live their entire life with that sense of what a blessing, what a steal that I have, that this is my spouse. Well, I get to walk around calling my husband, my wife. That is where the sages said that, yes, that's the transaction that we're looking for. And that's what every chuppah should be like. Some of the thoughts from first on this purchase of the field. Always a pleasure learning with you on a Wednesday afternoon. Wishing everybody an amazing day. Next week, again, next week, those of you are interested, we'll be live in person in Shul. We will still be on Zoom as well for those who like. And uh, look forward to seeing you all then. Have a wonderful day and a great week.